we move into Web3, we see the opportunities open of, of data being owned by the user, controlled by the user, and, and then you know incentivized and monetized. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a conversation from our recent Business Matters 2023 virtual conference. Few technologies are simultaneously as disruptive and controversial as cryptocurrency. Attitudes among business people range from viewing it as a way to revolutionize the entire monetary system to seeing cryptocurrency as an inherently valueless asset destined for an embarrassing collapse. The recent downfall of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried have only fueled this debate further. Here, Acton's chief operating officer, Dr. Stephen Barrows, talks with Dr. Guido Hulsman, who provides his perspective on this topic as one of the world's top Austrian economists and experts on the history of money, and Michelle Abbs, who provides her perspective as one of the world's top women in the NFT space. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, welcome back to Business Matters 2023. My name is Stephen Barrows, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at the Acton Institute. And I'm delighted that you could join us for this next session. And the session is entitled Cryptocurrency, Decentralized Finance, and Web 3.0, Substance or Hype? And I'm delighted to be joined today uh, by two professionals. First, I'd like to introduce Michelle Abs, who is CEO and founder of Web 3 Equity. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Wonderful to be here. And I'm also joined by Dr. Guido Hulsman, who's professor of economics at the University of Angers in France. Welcome, Guido. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. So, you know, I've observed over the past several years the entire sort of uh, domain of distributed ledger technology and Web 3.0. Uh, my own background is as an economist, so I kind of view that through it uh, through that lens. And I've noticed, of course, that uh, it's a very complex matter, uh, but it, it seems to have gained some traction. And so I'd like to at least begin with some ideas and concepts for our audience. So maybe I'll start with you, uh, Michelle. When we talk about Web 3.0, what does that basically mean? What are we referring to with Web 3.0? Yeah, so there's a lot of different definitions on this. Um, the way I think about it is, first of all, we did not enumerate the webs before, right? But you have to contextualize Web 3 with when we're referring to Web 1 and Web 2, right? So Web 1 being the dawn of the internet, um, you know, and I, I hearken back to these moments that I remember in sort of cultural history when Katie Couric was asking on the Today Show, like, what's that little A with the squiggly thing that we're going to be sending on this internet thing? You know, like that was Web 1.0. That was the dawn of the internet, um, you know, and we, we didn't totally understand what the potential that had. Then we move into web two, where we take this, you know, previous sort of read only static internet where we were receiving information and we, we bring it to life by being able to engage and create on that. That was, you know, the birth of sort of social network, social media, really e-commerce saw its boom in web two. Um, where, you know, these internet pages were not static read only anymore. Now we are writing and we are sharing. As we move into Web3, to me, the definition of Web3 is, in the broadest sense, the future of the internet. Um, and people, I think, use this as a, a catch-all term to incorporate a lot of technologies that we see that are that are imminently approaching. Um, obviously, many of those are fueled by blockchain technology and that distributed ledger system. But 
We also include in the term Web3 um, artificial intelligence. We you know, are talking about large data sets and machine learning and, and what we can do um, in, in the world of AI. We're talking about metaverse um, and you know, metaverses don't actually need to have blockchain technology to run. So what is you know, a metaverse, a augmented reality or a virtual reality experience? Um, so I think Web3 is a very broad term to capture that future of the internet that is differentiated from web one and web two. Um, and I think that, you know, piece of the distributed ledger and the blockchain technology is core to that future of the internet. That's great. Thank you, Michelle. And it's interesting the way you describe it as something that's quite broad and depending upon the definition could mean or refer to a, maybe a specific subset in somebody's mind. Uh, I'd like to now turn to, to you, Guido. When I think about Web 3.0, a term that has sort of emerged along with it is this idea of uh, cryptocurrency and or shall we say blockchain technology. And of course, you've written a book on the ethics of money production. And I wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit on this idea of crypto cryptocurrency and how it fits into the broader concept of money. Uh, money is a generally accepted uh, medium of exchange. And people use money in order to facilitate exchange. Without money, uh, we, we would have to exchange goods directly against one another. We would barter them. We would exchange apples against oranges and uh, piano lessons against shoes and whatever. Now, that's not very practical for various reasons. Therefore, people really have used for, from time immemorial that used media of exchange. And, and so the earliest media of exchange there in, in, in Europe were uh, uh, cattle money, right? So that's why we have expressions such as ca capital, right? Capital comes from counting heads of animals, right? It's the capital or, or pecuniary. Pecuniary comes from pecus, the cattle. It's a Latin word for cattle. And uh, and then we had precious metals for a very long time. And then we had uh, fiat money. This is standard money today. Fiat money first made its appearance in Europe, or let's say in, in Europe, yeah, in the, in, the, uh, in the 18th century. And then it became very widespread in the 20th century. And since 1971, it's been the dominant money. Now that, that's not very old, right, by, by historical standards. So we've been used to money that is, has been increasingly dematerialized, right? We start from something that is very tangible, uh, very emotional, right? Cattle and so on. So it's something that you live with. And uh, you turn to something that is cold, like metals, but still tangible, tangible wealth. And then we turn to something like paper. And then uh, I mean, paper is just, um, it's, it's not really um, uh, important that it be paper, right? It's becoming dematerialized. So the, the, the content itself, the uh, material support uh, is becoming increasingly uh, banal, right? So costless, right? So what makes uh, fiat money scarce is, um, uh, or valuable is the scarcity, is, is being kept artificially scarce, right? And uh, that's, of course, as prompt now, fiat money has uh, several, um, uh, one big advantage for the producer, that is for the authorities, which is that you can produce it at will and make as much of it as you wish. Now, that gives an enormous degree of freedom to the monetary authorities. Right? So they can, I mean, whatever good things you can do by creating money, they can do a lot of it. Yes, for sure. Okay, and but of course there are also uh, various disadvantages uh, that result from it, in which I discuss in my book. So I won't go through the, through the whole list. But clearly, I mean that kind of money is not uh, what typical money users would like, right? If people had the the choice between fiat money, which is good for the authorities, it may be good for everybody together, maybe. On the one hand, and on the other hand, something tangible and practical like uh, uh, silver coin or gold coin, they will probably prefer the, the latter because it keeps its value. Now that has prompted the development of uh, uh, Bitcoin, right? There was a previous step and I won't discuss all of this, right? But Bitcoin was very much motivated by this uh, situation. So we want to have something practical, um, but we want it to be scarce and therefore valuable, right? 
And we want to have something, that the scarcity of which cannot be easily corrupted. Therefore, the distributed ledger technology. So we spread it out. It's not possible for one element of the system to just overhaul the whole thing and corrupt uh, the, the, the scarcity, right? to destroy the scarcity. It can only be done collectively, and that's what it's very difficult to do this uh, collectively. And so that, that brings Bitcoin into the picture, right? Bitcoin techno technologically, because it is dematerialized, is in continuity with fiat money. Uh, it can be um, through uh, various techniques, most notably through Bitcoin exchanges, uh, but not only through Bitcoin exchanges, can be traded one person to another. It uh, is a very easily transferable as long as everybody's hooked up to the internet from one end to the globe to the other. Uh, you don't need financial intermediaries, you don't need banks and all of this, right? So all of these are uh, uh, great advantages that Bitcoin brings to the table. And um, uh, well, on the other hand, we have to, to state that currently uh, Bitcoin is not money, right? It is occasionally used as a medium of exchange, but even in its uh, uh, quality as a medium of exchange, there's no really no real Bitcoin circuit. Right? People would trade only Bitcoin, purchase Bitcoins and sell Bitcoins in order to uh, organize their division of labor within a company, company running on paying employees in Bitcoin receiving Bitcoins in payment, right? Everything like this. This, I, I mean, it might exist here and there, but it's a very uh, isolated uh, occurrence, if it exists at all. I don't know, actually. Um, so currently, Bitcoin is parasitical on the dollar system. Right? In order to use Bitcoin really to make purchases, you first have to convert Bitcoins into dollars or into euros uh, and, and then make purchases with this. Right? So that's the current state. So we're far away still from, from the situation in which Bitcoin would be a, a serious competitor as money. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting because on the one hand, there's a couple of threads here, I think, that are common to both of your responses. One is the notion of dematerialization or, or a dematerialize. It's something that um, we think of tangible things in the world. And then we have this idea of whether it be, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, the metaverse and so forth. It's something that's tough to kind of wrap our minds around compared to this, sort of the concrete touch and feel reality of gold coins or, say, a piece of art that you can actually hang on the wall. And so, you know, with that, I'm going to sort of weave these threads from both an economic standpoint and a business standpoint. Uh, and let's discuss a little bit now about some practical applications and whether or not, uh, going back to our theme, whether or not these are things that you think are going to have substance going forward or hype. So, Michelle, you know, one of the things that I've kind of struggled with is this idea of a non-fungible token. And uh, and just, you know, what what is an NFT um, how does it provide uh, potential applications that could be practically used by either individuals or businesses? So could you elaborate on this notion of non-fungible token? Yeah. And just to, to go back to the actual, you know, sort of title of this and, and a word that you used in the question is, is around hype. And I, I think there was a great disservice to what Web3 and blockchain technology really represents in the moment that NFTs became all the hype, because I think folks um, got distracted um, and started talking about NFTs as a strategy um, without understanding what that solves or why you would use that. So for example, you would never just say, you know, like, I'm going to go use this hammer to fix something well like does the hammer is the hammer the right tool to go fix that do you need a screwdriver do you need a i don't know actually a lot of other tools so we'll stop there with my <laughs> list but we started hearing people saying i'm gonna do an nft and and it's like what does the nft actually serve for and solve for so i i think there was a hype cycle around this that leads to some of this confusion and to your point of like you know are these really necessary and use uh usable in the future um because we saw nfts which you know to define the term non-fungible token um refers fungibility refers to the ability to break something up um, into smaller pieces. So, you know, what we heard the professor describing with currency, a dollar, a US dollar or a Bitcoin can be broken into pieces. Um, there are other items that are not fungible um, and you cannot have parts of uh, the whole. So you cannot 
have part of my car. Um, if you take one of the wheels of my car, it will not function. That is a non-fungible asset. It is one uh, piece together. So, so that is what we mean by the term fungibility and non-fungible. And when we talk about that as a token, we mean a, a digital asset that cannot be broken into pieces. So we saw this come mainstream. I think the first moment that this became part of a a more um, sort of common nomenclature was with NBA Top Shots, um, which was when we were digitizing different, uh, you know, sports moments in history. And I, I remember watching, um, you know, the newscasters on CNBC asking the question like, well, why would I want to own, you know, this digital moment of this, you know, LeBron James doing a slam dunk? Why wouldn't I just go to the internet and look at that moment? Um, and so I, I think those questions are are the right ones, but then lead to the core technology of what fungible or non-fungible tokens represent. This is ownership of a digital asset. And we actually understand this concept well if we think about domain names. When you own a domain name, you own a digital asset. Um, and I think about the first person who bought the domain hotels.com. Um, they may have, you know, been picking up different words that they thought would become things in the future. And sure enough, you know, 10 years later, someone came knocking on their door and said, I would like to buy that domain because that is a digital item that has value to me in my business. That is what NFTs represent is ownership of digital assets. And you can create um, digital assets that then represent um different uh, utility. Uh, so we, for example, have an NFT, but it's really a membership uh, token. So you you see, you know, there could be a world where um, sports gyms or, you know, uh, clubs that you have membership access to release that as a non-fungible token. So that is, you know, represented on a distributed ledger. And when you decide that you don't want to be a member of that anymore, rather than calling the gym or canceling your subscription, you sell that on a secondary market. Um, and so, you know, we can see tickets, for example, being sold or resold in this same way, where instead of having a physical ticket to get into a concert, you have a digital ticket. And that digital token um, represents, again, that one of one non-fungible um, digital ownership. So I think, you know, the, the moments that we saw kind of the the apes and the crypto punks and the pixelated, you know, uh, images that that became a bit of that hype cycle got folks distracted from the core technology. Um, and then, you know, the the second layer is really thinking about where that technology makes sense in a business case. That's great. That's actually very, very helpful. It helps me understand quite a bit better what a non-fungible token is and how it actually has some utility behind it. And that was a great analogy at the hotels.com. I didn't think about that. That's uh, yes. So I'm going to run with this a little bit more in terms of uh, you know practical application. And so when I think of when I've heard people make the case for Web 3.0 and and distributed ledger technology, the common terms I hear are it enables trust and exchange. And it also um, is decentralized, which enables you to proceed without an intermediary. So why don't I begin with you, Michelle, and then we'll turn to Guido. These concepts and maybe, you know, when I think of value creation, um, I think of, okay, what is it going to bring to our practical experience that would be beneficial? So is it the case that there's something unique here about its distributed nature and its use of cryptographic techniques to verify trust and exchange that businesses should be keeping an eye on? And let's start with you, Michelle. Yes, I think that's one of the core things. I would I would add two or three other themes, but I will give sure. a really specific case where where this um, trust and transparency is is uh, revolutionary. And so I think you know when you think about the what this technology represents as that distributed decentralized system is it takes away um, this large server hall where all of you know the data is stored in a centralized place and distributes that among a network of computers that are verifying um, transactions that are happening. That there's an incredible use case around decentralizing data ownership, um, which 
actually ownership is a separate theme, so I won't go too much into that. I'll stay on your your trust and transparency theme, but I sure. would, um, you know, I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. But you think about the places where is where is trust missing? Where where do we not trust a system, or where could um, certain parties who control information not want to share all of the information? Um, an example I love using that folks don't think about is. Um, weather. So there is a company called D Climate. They're a, a protocol of a marketplace of the world's climate history. So they have a century of the world's client history that is open source on a public ledger. And you would probably be saying, well, Michelle, why would people not trust weather, you know, data from a centralized source? Um, if you look at, for example, Qatar, who, uh, you know, built several soccer stadiums leading up to the World Cup, when they were, you know, putting in their World Cup bid, they said, we can absolutely construct all of these stadiums. Um, we have enough time to do that. Here's the data on, on, you know, our weather and our climate and why this is feasible for us to do. Well, actually, if you run a study on D-Climate's website, you will see the amount of days that the climate is actually suitable for construction workers to, to work. And you will see that that timeline was not transparent or to be trusted. So, so when you put information in a you know public, transparent domain and you allow um multiple, uh, you know, folks to insert that data instead of one central authority who's controlling the, the distribution of that, that data, you can see where it can, you know, be quite revolutionary. And I think, you know, in, in climate data, it's, it's a, 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 not a common thought for folks. They don't think that would, you know, be a place that, that maybe we would not trust things, but, but there actually are examples within that as a domain that it's quite needed to have this decentralized system. Oh, that's a, that's a very fascinating example. I didn't think about having somebody, if, if somebody owns all the information, right, and then, and then there's no other way to ver verify, uh, I could see how you could have the, the wool pulled over your eyes in, in presenting something like you just described. Thanks for that. Now, Guido, I wanted to maybe from an economic standpoint or a monetary standpoint, is there something to be gained from this decentralized nature of, of cryptocurrency in whatever form it might take or something that you see that's a, a true value creation from a monetary standpoint or not? Uh, well, I mean, in, in, in monetary economics and economics more generally, right, we have this division according to the different schools of, of thought. Right? So you have different theories that are differently fashionable with different folks. Now, as far as money is concerned, uh, for a very long time, it's not just the 20th century. I mean, this reaches back really centuries. Uh, some people thought that uh, by increasing the money stock, you can create aggregate benefits for the community as a whole. Whereas others, others thought um, that that is not the case. So money is best when it's just stable and uh, or if it's at least competitive so that its quantity does not increase very much. Right. So these are irreconcilable sure. opinions. Okay. Right. So uh, that is, even if you had um, a common money, however it's organized, if it's a ledger or whatever, it doesn't really matter. You would have to address that kind of question: What kind of money do you want to have? Right. And the ledger would, would organize. Ledger is one way of organizing that thing that you want. But uh, it's it's not something that would take away the decision from you. It's a, so it's a human decision that has to be made. And then you can organize the execution in the form of a letter and so on. Right? Um, uh, now, decentralized systems like this, um, they, they, give, they provide a solution given certain premises, given certain orientation. The guy who has created Bitcoin, and actually we don't know whether it's a guy or a girl or... <laughs> Or whatever, it's not a machine. That's the only thing that we know. <laughs> right? Right. So the, the person or the group that has created Bitcoin uh, had a, a conservative outlook on the economy. So it's rather arguing like Aristotle, Plato, uh, Aquinas, uh, Ludwig von Mises, and so on, right? That money is best if it's stable, 
that knowledge of it can be expanded very easily. So if you like that, well, I mean, you're probably made for Bitcoin. Right? If you don't like it, you, you say, well, Bitcoin is actually not a good thing and it shouldn't get off. Shouldn't get off the ground, right? Because it might entrap us, and we we are just in hell, in the Bitcoin hell. We cannot get out of this, right? Um, but okay, so I mean, there, there is no uh, Bitcoin offers no possibility to express the disagreements with its principle. You're either part of it or you're not, right? So therefore, also in the, the example, uh, Michelle, that you gave before with with the uh, climate data uh, thing, right? Of course. How it's just a question, right? I, I don't know. How do they handle disagreements, right? So you have people who are coming in, bringing in different information or data. What if somebody plugs in data uh, that are different from the ones that have been integrated formally into the system? Is there a way to handle this? I mean, I didn't write the smart contract and I don't know enough about the API to answer that question. But I think these are the questions. To me, this is, I think, the opportunity of the moment of Web3 is that Mm -hmm. I believe we realize the potential and there are a lot of these questions that that need to be answered, right? So what what if they are different? How do we handle that? What is, you know, the the code that says, you know, this one over over this one who's verifying um where that comes from you know it's an open source network right so so how are we ensuring that these are good actors you know with good intent so so there's a lot of these questions baked into the opportunity that we see of this technology it strikes me that one of the key things about this technology is that the moment of sort of data entry onto the blockchain or the distributed technology, and then the moment it, it's it's read, it's it's critical that those moments be moments where there's um, accuracy or truth, so to speak. And then the blockchain itself is the thing or the mechanism that verifies that nothing has been tampered with along the way. So this was an interesting. So I, I've heard of one other application of this, and we can go back to some of the monetary questions in a moment, Guido, but somebody had mentioned to me that that one of the things that could be used, so if you have a war zone and you have a photographer and they take a picture of a war crime when it happens, as long as the moment that that photo is taken and it's put on the blockchain, you can have certainty that nobody has tinkered or doctored the photo from point A until its final presentation in a court of law, so to speak, which tell, which strikes me as, now maybe there's other technologies that can do something similar, but that practical aspect of trust that nobody's tampered with it along the way strikes me as being something very valuable. Now, I could be wrong. So any, any comments on that or? I mean, I think we have to trust the human at the origin point, yes. right? So if, if I say I am this photographer in this place and I took this photo, that that part has to be trusted. But once it is it is minted or published and executed on the blockchain, it is it is an immutable ledger, meaning you cannot go back and edit um, what what was published. You cannot edit the sort of rules about that image and and what can uh you know happen with that image uh so yes like that that portion of it we can trust um and i think to your point that we we talked about this before with with bitcoin and the ability to do transactions instantaneously um you know the that photo can be minted or or published on the blockchain instantaneously right so so someone could be in a in a war zone publish that, we can verify um, that and see that in in the public ledger. Um, but there is that sort of inception moment of who who is the account that's publishing it? Do we actually trust and verify that that human um, is who they say they are and where they say they are? So Guido, going back to your initial uh, remarks there on on a monetary system, is there something that you could see is either an improvement upon the current monetary system that this new technology could bring to the fore, or is it just an interesting innovation that may or may not be applicable going forward? Yeah, in, in, in the worst case, it's the latter, right? In the worst case, I'd say it's 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 a new option, it's an alternative that can be tried, tested. And you can find out how a fight goes. Because make, make no, no mistake here, uh, I mean, few people are able to understand the code. And I wonder, actually, how many people have read something like the Bitcoin code or something? Right. <laughs> right. right? So, 
So, I mean, what, you, what the two of you said before that, I mean, the, the, there's a crucial moment when you enter information into the system. That's true. That's a crucial moment. But, of course, you also need to trust that the system functions as promised. Mm. And we have no, you really need to trust this because there is no way for you, I mean, for 99.999% of the population to verify this independently. Yes, you cannot, I can see that. You cannot get around, you cannot get around the, the trust issue. So there's somebody with a straight face that looks at you and says, well, this is how Bitcoin works. Okay. I didn't check it. <laughs> right? So, so yes. let's say, and, and most of the discussions that I see in, in the economics community, uh, and uh, engineers might be different, there might be one or two who are really knowledgeable, but most economists, they, they, they like lawyers, they reason from premises. Suppose that it works as, as described, and so on, so, okay. Now, I, I must say I'm a bit, um, uh, because I'm, also involved with assessment of risks and so on, right? So it is a risk, right? Because we're ignorant. Now it might be uh, risk is something that is related to the quality of our thinking or to the world, right? So Bitcoin might exactly be as it is described by the programmatic pronouncements of the of the creator and so on, but maybe not. I I don't know. Yes, so and I suppose that that would be just one, and Bitcoin being then just actually one form of distributed ledger technology that's seeking to 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 leverage consensus in a distributed fashion. Uh, there's all sorts of other distributed ledger technologies or forms or spinoffs or what have you. I've heard of Hashgraph and others that mm -hmm. do a similar thing. But yeah, I mean, what you describe is is a very practical challenge like you do have to of course we do that with everything else as well i mean when i when i right. sit there on, on the computer today and do something over the internet i'm trusting and and i guess one one good thing using email as a protocol example i have no idea how my email gets to the address that i send it to as a practical matter i just know that it never goes to the wrong address as long as i type in the right email right so so what's happening behind that with the email protocols right. and so forth? But uh, right. no, I, I think there is something uh, interesting there. Now, I, I, I want to continue on this idea of money because I hear um, discussions. Uh, you mentioned earlier central banking and uh, the fiat monetary system. One thing that does make me a little anxious is the idea of a central bank digital currency. Now, I could see some you know practical utility um, with with this. Uh, but there are some risks, risks of, uh, uh, you know, the banking system itself responding to, you know, what would happen uh, if we had a central bank that had its own currency that then everybody used. You didn't have other intermediary banks. But then I also have concerns from a standpoint of privacy and security. Um, all those are being addressed by various central banks across the globe. We could see some currency competition going in new forms if, if say, China comes out with a full-blown CBDC. What are your thoughts on this, the risks from a historic standpoint and going forward? Something to be concerned about? Oh, absolutely. And if, in terms of money, if we're looking at the risks, the things that could go wrong, they all have gone wrong in the past, right? Whatever could go possibly go wrong has gone wrong. Right? So that, that, that's a fact. Right? So you entrust such a powerful instrument to any group of persons, either in government or somewhere else, well, they will... Uh, eventually come to use it to their benefits and if necessary to the detriment of everybody else. Uh, so definitely, I mean, uh, our authorities have assured us in the past, I mean, in the US there might be still be more privacy than, than we have in Europe, but I mean, there's been all promises, all sorts of promises have been given. We will not use this public information, uh, publicly available information, not the privately held information to look into your tax records and so on, but that's wrong. And I've even heard, I've read articles about uh, uh, the U.S. in which uh, the IRS uh, has been accused to be abused, uh, looking into political opponents and so on, things that we have also heard here in France and so on. So definitely, if the abuse is possible, yes, eventually it will be abused. Right? So central bank digital currency um, allows for enormous breaches of privacy. It makes people just completely tra transparent for the authorities without any reciprocity. It's, it's a completely unilateral thing. Right? You mm -hmm. don't have that kind of insight into what politicians do, or central bankers do, but they know everything about you. Mm. Or That's at least they can. <laughs> That's not a healthy basis for a democracy, I would say. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's that, that, that's uh, that, that's a big problem. 
right? Then, of course, if everybody can can set this up, um, yeah, there might be some scope for increased competition. The Chinese set up their central bank digital currency, the Russians do it, the Americans do it, the Europeans do it. Okay, if everybody can have access to all these different monies, might be a good thing. Right? It's increased competition. So this would temper some of the possible excesses. But I mean, look, let's be honest, the, the, the whole point for the authorities is to have the benefits without competition. So I don't see how they would allow such a situation to emerge. And technically, it's very easy. I mean, we've seen this uh, with, with other technological applications in the past that the governments can block access to different websites. Right? So whenever I want to uh, open a Rumble video in France, I get the message, oh, you're not allowed as a French citizen to, to have access to, to this material. Okay, wonderful. And so why should it be different in the case of a Chinese central bank digital currency or American digital currency, right? So we will be um, uh, locked up uh, with our national provider, whatever are the political authorities in our countries. If there's no competition, then that, that, that gets very nasty or can get very nasty. Interesting. So it still depends sort of on the regulatory or, or juridical framework of the particular country and what they're going to allow you to do or not do <laughs> with that technology. That's that's interesting. So there's a flip side of this, Michelle, I kind of want to ask you about, and you'd kind of alluded to it before with this idea of having everything centralized on a, on a particular server, a group of servers. And one of the benefits, it sounds to me, of, of the distributed ledger technology is you're not as vulnerable to say – uh, a Google or another big tech company that has access to all your data and and uh, and and you it, because of its distributed nature. Any benefits that you could describe, or maybe I'm wrong. Um, is this is this not a benefit for with this technology? Yeah, I think there's certainly a benefit, and I think actually just you know one of maybe the main themes of what we are uncovering with this entire conversation is that. There are two sides to each coin, each side of this, right? So we're on one hand, I feel very op optimistic around you know what it, the opportunity is and and what this presents. And on the other side, there is an underbelly of of each of these aspects. So in relation to to data, um, data being centralized, being owned, um, and I think you know. Web3 is in response to the major tech players of Web2. So Amazon, Facebook, now Meta, Google, Microsoft, all of them that have all of our data that then they actually have control over as many of them are monetizing that. And, you know, we, we become um, a commodity. So in Web3, we have an opportunity to take ownership back of our data. Um, and I think there are some interesting use cases where that data um, can be stored, centralized, and, and held and token-gated in a place that only you have access to, and then you choose who else has access to that data. Um, so there are there are some folks who are playing with the thought exercise of what it will look like to have your shopping and transaction history and all the data there owned uh, within your wallet, and then you could choose to sell that. There are folks who are exploring what that will look like with health records, right? So in, instead of um, a pharmaceutical company maybe being able to access data, um, you know, without us knowing, of course, we sign all of the HIPAA, uh, you know, laws, <laughs> right. so we, we, they're not too nefarious with this. But what would it look like is actually, you know, a, a pharmaceutical company needs my data, and I may want to share that with them. And there actually may be a world where I could be um, incentivized to share my data, where the pharmaceutical company would say, hey, we'd like to pull this data set of, you know, women between these ages with this, um, you know, underlying cause or factor in, in their health records. And we are going to pay $100,000 for this data set. And then they, you know, split that up between all of the women who decide to share their data. So, so there is, you know, this centralized data of, Web 2, when we move into Web 3, we see the opportunities open of, of data being owned by the user, controlled by the user, and, and then, you know, incentivized and monetized. But of course, you know, with each of these opportunities, I think there are there are aspects underneath that um, to, to the point of, you know, who now do, do we want all of these things to be um, out of our our out of the centralized control? 
And the core piece of this that I, I, I worry about, or I think a lot about is the sovereignty of that. So, so we, we become sovereign over anything that is within that wallet and within, um, you know, the token gated access that, that we have, if we lose the password or the entry into that wallet, there is no um, centralized support system that is is holding, you know, the password that we can call and say, I forgot my password. Can you get me back into my account? Um, and I think, you know, we have seen this be a place where, you know, unfortunate sort of scams or, or hackers are, are attacking at that point of um of you know self sovereignty and they're they're sort of tricking people to give them access and then they're they're draining these wallets of of those you know whatever is comprised within the um in that token gated space so i think while the opportunity is there there's a lot of knowledge there's a lot more um sort of user and consumer experience that has to be seen before we get in a place where this is really safe so that's interesting. And the, the idea of losing the password and you have all of these digital assets you suddenly no longer have access to and you sort of lose it. Does this also, you had uh, referenced earlier a, a potential benefit connected to the concept of ownership. And is this uh, also what you're referring to when you're talking about a, a you know, your password, private key, public key? What is the benefits or what ownership benefits might derive from this technology? Yeah, so I think again, the, you know, token ownership represents ownership of digital assets. And when we move into more assets being on the blockchain, more things being digitized, um, and then we go to a place where you will actually own that digitized data. So there are companies that are working on um, tracking, for example, a a clothing brand's um, secondary market sales. Um, and where that clothing brand's, um, you know, resale goes, who that goes to, who owns it, um, what's what's happened, you know, within the sort of use and like wearability of that item, you then, if you are the owner, the holder of that clothing item, and you have the data, right? So, so there is um, that then desirability of other folks to have access to that data as well, which then you could you could monetize and you could sell. Interesting. So I, you know, thinking about the benefits of ownership, one of the things that has come up in the discussion of this technology is the idea of the poor, uh, particularly in the developing world, and uh, the potential for this technology to allow access to effectively uh, banking without an intermediary. And so, you know, I've heard of stories where technologies are being developed in in Africa where an individual can simply do trades and transactions using their phone and they don't have to have enough income to be able to establish a bank account with the banking system. Um, Guido, would you uh, comment on the idea of the potential of improving uh, exchange with this technology, especially for those who are unbanked or have difficulty using the the banking system as it currently exists? Well, as as far as I see, the the, the main uh, promise does not seem to concern is exchange as such, but more specifically credit. Right? Uh, um, yes. I mean, as, as far as exchange as such is concerned, there are other solutions. For example, in France, uh, we we have, uh, and I think we have the same thing in the U.S., but I don't know the institutions as well, so the institutional landscape. Uh, but in France, we had for at least uh, 10, 15 years, we, we had uh, uh, companies specializing in pro- providing exchange services. So we can have an account with that company, uh, but uh, you, you cannot have credit. You cannot overdraw. The only payments that you can make, you, you cannot write a check, nothing. You just get a payment card, and the payment card is limited to the amount uh, of money that's credited on that account. Okay, so it's really it's it's like I mean what economists call a deposit banking of the old sort, the old school, mm. right? We had known it already since the 17th century. So yet uh, you cannot you have no overdraw, and then as soon as there's no credit provided by this institution, it's not called a bank. It's just a payment provider, payment sure. provider. Okay, so that has been most beneficial for especially for poor people or for people who had difficulties, financial difficulties with their banks, who had lost their banking connection, bank didn't want to have anything to do with them, and so, so they could get an account and be functional 
right, receive whatever social security benefits uh, on that account or occasional payments, whatever uh, donations from their relatives and so on, then make payments uh, from there, right? So you don't really need a, a web free or distributed ledger or something to, to get something like this going, right? Sure. But so the, the, the promise is indeed, uh, okay, um, would you not be able to, to obtain funding through uh, the, the internet? Right, mm. without the intermediation of a bank. And undoubtedly, that is the case. And we've seen this even, um, I mean, again, right, uh, without distributed ledger technology, uh, if you think of things like uh, crowdfunding, right? Now, there's yes. a platform, so that would rather be uh, Web 2.0, okay, or <laughs> would be 3.0. Uh, so it has already existed some disintermediation as compared to the banking system, but you still have the intermediary, which is the banking system, which is the platform, right? Now, distributed ledger, something like Bitcoin and so on, allows you to, gives you the possibility to arrange for transfers, credits, and so on, on a one-to-one -one basis without going through a bank. Right? And given the informational possibilities of the internet, yes, that, that holds some promise. How far it will go, I'm a bit skeptical, I must say. Right? Sure. I mean, as far as, I, as far as charitable donations are concerned, that's one thing. Okay, that that opens up new horizons, I would say, in charity. Uh, but as far as commercial credit is concerned, I'm skeptical, because yes. commercial credit uh, is based on the ability of a creditor to assess the credibility of the debtor, mm. and few people have the technical wherewithal to do this. Right. So that's why most people rely on some intermediary. It's just the the value added that comes from that kind of expertise. So I don't expect financial intermediaries to be fundamentally challenged by that new technology. I think the new te technology will fill in some gaps, fill in some voids, provide additional complementary services that were not possible up to now, but it will not fundamentally overhaul financial intermediaries. That, that's interesting. And, and so I'm going to raise the elephant in the room, at least in current events are concerned in terms of financial intermediaries. And that's what's happened with FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. And just seeing, you know, I know many people pointed to that incident and the implosion of that uh, uh, FTX and said, see, I, I, it's, it's, it's a fraud, it's a scam, and uh, it's demonstrated right here. Uh, so we'll start with you, Guido. Um, without delving into, I know that they're still unraveling exactly what happened. It's now being reviewed in you know, courts and so forth, and it's going to take some time to play out. But do you think that FTX um, has struck a death blow <laughs> to this? Or do you think that it's just a bump in the road and that it just underscores the need to have a stronger juridical framework for this technology to thrive? We'll start with you, Guido, and then go to Michelle. No, I, 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 I agree with the latter position, right? It, it's not, I don't think it's a fatal blow. I mean, these things happen all the time, but it just shows, it provides a very valuable lesson, namely that um, uh, some of the problems, maybe most of the problems that have plagued the traditional banking system are likely to recur uh, with Bitcoin and similar monies, right? Let's say even if Bitcoin works itself, works exactly as promised, Right? So the Bitcoin says is, is completely rock solid and works as promised. It's a conservative thing. It cannot be corrupted. And so let's suppose this. Okay. Then we should still expect um, to, uh, banking institutions, credit institutions, to develop based on that new money. Mm. And in these institutions, then because they operate based on trust, trust can be abused, which was the case here right, with, with FTX. Right? So people trusting him. Uh, he, he was not, I mean, the, the people who entrusted in their funds, they were precisely not operating on a pure ledger operation and so on, verifying, having the possibility to verify each instant what he was doing and so on. And he did, uh, in, in a ledger system, he would not have had access to these funds, right? So there was really a transfer of funds based on trust. So clearly here we have a banking style operation without any regulation, was short of shadow banking. And uh, yeah. Uh, now, I don't want to make a case for the regulation of uh, <laughs> crypto-based banking. That's not my point. I think the lesson is valuable, right? And people, sometimes they need to make bad experience in order to be more careful the next time, right? You don't entrust your money to somebody who has no experience in, in, in banking, financial intermediation. It's a young chap who has, has no 
previous professional pertinent uh, experience and his whole stuff, all people of the same kind. That's, that's just crazy. And sure. so people have lost their money. That's fine. And I think next time they will be more circumspect. And that's exactly as it should be. Yes. Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Yes. So <laughs> interesting. How about you, Michelle? What do you think? Was this a fatal blow to the industry? And, and or do you think it is something that just is a lesson learned? Or what is your perspective? I wish the media would have written the accurate narrative, which is FTX was a centralized exchange. We are talking about decentralized distributed ledgers. FTX was not decentralized. That is why that happened, right? To, to, to you know, the professor's point, this was each of his transactions were not publicly transparent. If you want a decentralized exchange, you use something like Uniswap or, you know, you're swapping this and this is actually the transactions are shown. What what happened was, I think this is the, the downside of the hype cycle. People were putting their money into an exchange with a very high promised return rate. You know, there, there are multiple exchanges who have who have also fallen after this, who, you know, promised 10, 15 percent returns in three months time. I mean, I think that any savvy, thoughtful investor or money manager is going to say, how are you guaranteeing this percent return? Something seems off here. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly something was off there, um, but it was centralized action of something happening behind a curtain that we could not publicly see that that led to that result. And so yeah, I think it's a real learning moment for for people to um, understand the technology and and, you know, both the, the pros and the cons of that. But I also I it's not a death blow in the sense, you know, there there was a um, a drain on uh, the wallets of all Bitcoin holders back in 2014 called the Monk Gox scandal, which was, uh, I, I will have to fact check the exact numbers, but upwards of 90% of the total supply of Bitcoin was stolen mm. um, and, and, you know, fell and collapsed in that moment. What, you know, the FTX um, fall represented less than 20% of you know, the total supply of all of the cryptocurrencies within that exchange. So while while it, it was a tough moment, um, I think for folks, cryptocurrencies have navigated worse. And I do believe that it's it's a it's a value system. It's a thought system around, um, you know, how goods and services and currency should be exchanged um, that that is stronger than than any sort of desire on on a you know percent return on on that currency so i i don't think it's a death blow i think we continue on um and i hope that we continue you know to learn from this lesson and actually learn the the benefits of decentralized systems versus centralized exchanges no, that's great, and, and I'm with you. I, I I hope that people do learn from this whole uh, episode, especially those who are unfortunate enough to have made the imprudent choice to put a bunch of money and life savings into FTX. So we we have just a, less than five or ten minutes to go, and so thinking about um, you know we have an audience that consists of business professionals, um, students, and so forth. Uh, I, I think I'll begin with you, and then we'll close out you with um, uh, Guido. If you were to give a summary to somebody who approaches you and say, okay, hype or substance, what should I be thinking about with Web3, decentralized finance, cryptocurrency? How would you kind of summarize it for them? Good thing, bad thing? How would you recommend they keep their eye on this new technology? Let's start with you, Michelle. I think it's a great thing. And I think the call to action is to learn in this moment. Um, we, we do not want to have that, you know, we, we look back on these moments of, again, I use that Katie Couric example. There's an example where uh, David Letterman is interviewing Bill Gates in 1994 and telling him that he thinks the internet is stupid. And, and why, why would you watch a baseball game on the internet when you can just listen to it on the radio, right? We, we want to be educated in this moment to understand the opportunity so that 10, 20 years from now, no one's looking back and going, wow, you really didn't get it. 
Um, but what we need to educate ourselves on are the, the core themes of how blockchain technology, how Web3, you know, AI, metaverses can be used in the future. Um, and I think, you know, we've really unpacked this idea around transparency. So look for places where there is fraud, where there is counterfeit, um, you know, challenges, transparency, you know, could be a solution that we look at blockchain technology for. Look at places where scarcity um, is an opportunity. So, you know, we talked about currency having a set number. Um, we also see scarcity in various um, consumer goods, right? We, we know that luxury brands, for example, release a certain amount of purses, you know, per year or sunglasses per year to keep that scarce. There's opportunities to think about scarcity within blockchain. Um, there's opportunities to think about provenance, right? Blockchain technology allows us to establish that origin point. Um, think about where where is it necessary to understand the provenance of something. Um, in art, uh, Andy Warhol's art is the most commonly counterfeited art in the world because it can can be um, so easy to replicate. What establishing provenance in a digital asset allows us to do is say, this was the true origin of that digital item. So where that makes sense in your business or, or you know, in what you're studying, um, that's a great application. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the last bucket is really around the community angle, the co-creation, the co, um, co, you know, collaboration um, with folks who own something together. Um, so if there is a set amount of tokens that represent a community with shared values and folks are able to make decisions together, that is another place that, you know, blockchain um, allows us to explore that we could not explore before. Um, and so I think, learn, you know, high level, and then learn about these core themes and how that might may apply um, within the work you do. And the last thing I will say um, is a bit paradoxical, but I love to lean into a great paradox. Um, <laughs> so on one hand, you need to understand the core themes of this technology. On the other hand, you don't, right? We, we many of us, travel and we get on airplanes and we trust that that airplane is going to take off and land. And yet very few of us are aeronautical engineers. N you know, we don't know how to build an actual plane and yet we fly, you know, millions of Americans fly every day. And so understand this technology, but don't get mired down in the having to read every single line of code um, to feel like you can really take action in Web3. Great, great summary, great tips there. Uh, appreciate that, Michelle. How about you, Guido? What will be sort of your walkaway recommendations for people that are inquiring about this technology? Well, it's by and large, it is very similar to what Michelle has just said. Uh, I think the, the crucial thing is the following. Uh, indeed, you need to explore because it's something that is new, uh, that has repercussions that we do not currently see or understand, and they will become more clear as we go along, as we explore. Some things will be good, others will be not, we will learn. So that's a great thing. Uh, so it's so the point is that we make these marginal applications. What would be wrong is to bet the farm on the thing and uh, to use such technology to create overarching systems. And, and then, especially if you force everybody to take part in these systems, that would be a recipe for disaster uh, in my eyes, because uh, the whole point of exploring is precisely to well to get to know slowly and with limited danger, uh, limited impact of the things that you hadn't anticipated, you know, of the things that do not work very well or that do not work well for you at any case, right? So if you impose a whole system on on everybody, uh, you make the whole economy and the whole society, in fact, you make it fragile, right? It's a difference whether you explore, you sit into a car, and it's true, you don't know how the car operates. You uh, buy a plane ticket, you fly to another place. I mean, if something goes wrong, it's you and a few hundred other people, but that's it, okay? It's a different thing if you build a ledger system to take an extreme case, right? Non-financial tokens for all of real estate in the US, right? And then there is a flaw in that system that would mm. be possible, right? And then suddenly you have incredible damage uh, brought on, on a massive scale. So that would probably not be a good thing to do. So it needs to be competitive uh, and, uh, 
it, it's born out of this competitiveness. So that's a great thing. And uh, we need to keep it that way. Well, thank you very much for those closing remarks from each of you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned quite a bit, and it strikes me that this is a place where I say I'm so grateful for the entrepreneur. Uh, the entrepreneurs out there are the ones who are taking advantage of these new technologies, these new ideas, and hopefully, like they have in the past, they find fabulous ways that nobody had ever conceived of to apply new technologies. And as we all go forward, um, I trust that those watching uh, the Business Matter Conference um, uh, will take these things and advice into account as they think about how they might be able to apply this technology in their life. So thank you very much, Michelle Abs, Guido Holzman. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you so much for joining us for Business Matters 2023. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.